0: church while they're heading out, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29. If you've been in church long enough, you know where we're heading. Jeremiah 29. We are going to read verse 11 together, church and then pray and ask God to speak to us through the text, reveal to us something maybe that God is calling out to us to see the deeper truths of His Word. So Jeremiah 29, verse 11. says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray. Father, we come as broken sinners in desperate need of everything that only you can provide us. Father God, I pray that every single one of us that come in here this morning, Lord, we come from a week of busyness. God, we come from a week of maybe discouragement, of disappointment. God, maybe we come from a week of celebration and joy. Wherever we might be right now in this moment, Father God, I pray that our hearts and minds would be fixed on you and your word and everything you have to speak to us. God, hide me behind you, hide my faults, my sin, hide those things behind you. God, let you be seen and your word be spoken in a mighty way. Father God, we thank you that you would come and dwell among sinful man right now in this moment, Lord, and we just praise you and pray that everything we do would be done for your glory and your honor. Lord, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' holy name. So church, as we started two weeks ago, we started into a sermon series that we called How'd You Hear It? And so the idea is taking the summer, really, to lean into some texts, lean into some scriptures that maybe have been misunderstood. And so the kind of the idea that we want to lean into, not that we have all the answers, but there is an approach, you know, and I, I had read something this past week from a, a, a church and you know, they were basically kind of criticizing any church that would ever call anybody out or say anything about their teaching or whatever it might be. Um, and that it's all about this, this, and this, or whatever it might be. But the reality of it is, churches, that churches don't present the Word of God the way that it's presented sometimes, because sometimes we take God's word and we want to use it and mold it around ourselves. Right. And that's what has been kind of the, 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 the dictation of how we figure out what these verses mean in context, what they mean for the deeper truths of God's word is, is all of this pointing back to me and my good and how I can accomplish something. Or is this leading me into better, deeper, bigger things in my life, deeper truths that God intends for me to have, you know, and, and we can't be afraid to stand next to a brother or sister, even in Christ, and be able to say, listen, that's just not the way that that's supposed to be read. And not that we have all the answers, but God's Word is very clear. Like God's Word communicates these texts in a specific way. And so this morning, I know as we read that verse, if you've been around or in church long enough, you've heard this verse spoken. You've probably seen this verse printed and stitched on pillows, uh, on coffee mugs, all kinds of things. And, and you know, the beautiful thing about this text is it really is an amazing passage of scripture. So I know a lot of times when we begin to kind of lay out a little criticism on maybe a misinterpretation of scripture, it begins to seem harsh and like we need to take the verse as discouraging, but I don't think that's the case. I think that when we see it for what it really means, it actually invites us into a deeper, more satisfying experience of who God is in the midst of real life. You know, because there's a way that you interpret this verse that is not real life. There's a way that you interpret this verse that gives false hope in the midst of the dark, dangerous, hurt-filled world that we live in that is not what God wants us to hear from it. But there is a deeper truth that God intends, a more accurate truth that God intends for us to have. And, you know, this verse, typically, it's usually prescribed to an individual communicating a promise that guarantees Immediate release from whatever difficult situation they're navigating. And so a lot of times, you know, and the way that I've heard it used inappropriately is, is when somebody's navigating a hard season of life, self-inflicted or non-self-inflicted, sometimes we have control, sometimes we don't, right? Sometimes we're hurt, sometimes things happen to us that we had zero control over. And so a lot of times, whenever this verse has been utilized, when it's been read to individuals or read over individuals, as I would say, you know, it's... It's for I know the plans I have for you. It declares the Lord plans for welfare, not for evil to give you a future and hope. Like, you know, it's this encouragement that like, hey, where you're at right now, this isn't where God wants you to be. So there's more beyond this. Like you, you, you got to overcome this. Like God wants better for you than this. Like you like this, there's something wrong. Like you're doing something wrong or you're, you're self inflicting in some situations it may be. But then in some situations, it's not. Sometimes we're in bad situations and we have no idea how we got there. And sometimes we're in bad situations because of years and years and years of bad choices or whatever it might be. And so a lot of times we find ourselves in these situations and the prescription that is given in this is in a lot of ways a a misinterpretation or a misunderstanding of what's happening in this verse. You know, because when we're interpreting scripture, we have to keep in mind the the distinction between a passage's interpretation and a passage's application, because those things are very different. A passage can only have, when you're reading the Bible, and I'm kind of, you know, this, we're getting to where I want us to be. But I just want to hear this out a little bit. A, a passage can only have one interpretation, right? A passage can only mean one thing. But a passage can have many applications. There can be ways at which we can find promise and encouragement from Scripture, even if the interpretation isn't specific to what we think it means. And so I hope that as we read through this a little bit and kind of lay out some groundwork, you'll begin to see that the thing that we can't lose focus on is the original interpretation. Because the interpretation of a passage of Scripture carries the weight of that passage of Scripture. And if we lose the interpretation of the Scripture, then it affects every application after it. We have to, we have to see the weight and the gravity of the interpretation to begin to see the application that God has for us. So so I always like to kind of start with, as we've been in this, like what is the context? What is going on in this verse when we read the prophet Jeremiah who God has sent to the people of Israel to uh, bring a message? And so what, what is happening from the beginning of Jeremiah up to this point is that the prophet Jeremiah has been given the job, a very difficult job, a job that was not received well a job that people did not listen. And listen, a lot of times in our Christian walk, we can feel like that when we have people in our lives that we want to share our faith with. We want to see them taking these right steps in their life and they continue to not to, or they even ridicule or push us away. This was the life of Jeremiah in almost every step of his ministry. And so God commissioned Jeremiah to go to the people of Israel and warn them, warn them about their sin and warn them about the potential destruction to come if they continue in their way. And so remember, Israel is God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Okay? This is pre-Jesus, before Jesus, but God has chosen a group of people, set apart a group of people that this is focus, that His attention, that, that His His blessing rains down on, and also His discipline, that God would discipline His people. And we know, you know, that any good father will discipline, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but dads, you know, we, we tend to have to say a lot of no and a lot of... Uh, put, put a lot of fear in our kids' hearts to make them pay attention to us and listen sometimes, but that's just the task. And so God does the same thing with us. God disciplines us, God corrects us, and sometimes God even puts a little bit of fear in our hearts to remind us that He is the Almighty Creator that could take everything away like that. But, I had a bug on the screen. But <clears throat> there is, in the midst of this, something very significant going on. And so, as the people of Israel, as it moves from Jeremiah into the, like the mid to later parts of Jeremiah, we start to see that they continue to live the way they're wanting to live, they continue to do the things they want to do, and whether they're leading towards is these spaces of trouble and difficulty and destruction... And so what happens is they do not take the warning, all right? And and I encourage you to go back and read through Jeremiah. Awesome book. Really, 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 really just intentional, heavy stuff because Jeremiah is pleading with them, pleading with them to... Turn away from their sin. And so what happens is, is, Jeremiah does all this, they continue to push away. And so God says, basically, in this moment, like, I'm going to send an enemy against you. Like, you're going to enter into very difficult times. Like, you're going to enter into some hard situations. And so what happens is, eventually, the king, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and if you've heard any, a lot of old Bible stories kind of include Nebuchadnezzar. When you think about Daniel, we think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of this place called Babylon. And so he's taken, he goes into Jerusalem and he goes into where the Israelites are and he takes all the Jews, destroys their land and he brings them as exiles back to Babylon basically to be slaves, to be kind of indoctrinated with their way of life. And so they're basically, they've basically kidnapped a whole civilization of people because they're a massive powerhouse of an army. And they take all these people and they bring them back to Babylon. And so Jerusalem is deserted. The promised land where God's people were, is now deserted it's it lays to ruins and so all of this happens and so in Jeremiah 29 what's happening is Jeremiah's writing or speaking a message by a messenger to these people and so at this moment in Jeremiah 29 11 the people are in captivity they're in a place of exile they're not in a great place they're not at home they're not comfortable. They're suffering to some extent. I mean, if you read Daniel, if you you know, and see with Daniel, you know, thrown in a lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown in the the furnace, like they're under persecution. They're being pressured to take on the characteristics of the culture around them. Does this sound familiar? And so God allows this king to come in and take his chosen people to this place, away from their homes, away from their comfort. And then so Jeremiah is writing or speaking per messenger to these people. And what does he say? He says, "For, for God says this, for thus says the Lord, back in verse 10. And he's talking to these people because he wants them to understand something. And there's so much that we need to see within this. So in verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, he says, For thus says the Lord, when, listen, 70 years, not 17, not seven, 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. He says, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then verse 11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So where are we at in this story? We're at the beginning of 70 years of captivity. 70 years of captivity. And and Jeremiah is trying to bring them a sense of encouragement about the promises of God to help them understand something. And can you see where when we talk about the the, the application, the misapplication of this verse telling you that God's intention is to immediately remove you from any bad situation you may find yourself in, self-inflicted or non-self-inflicted? Because this exile, this captivity is men, women, and children. And so... Not everyone, in a sense, actively participated in the sinful nature of God's people at this point. But everyone was affected negatively by it. So sometimes we enter into seasons of life that are difficult, that are not our own immediate faults. But it's a place at which we have to navigate. Right? It's a place at which we have to live through. It's a place at which we're going through. And so Jeremiah is writing to these people and he's telling them. He's telling them, listen, I know where you are right now. And I know it's the beginning of the hardest season of your lives right now. There's not many other situations like this, except for whenever the, the Jews were in uh, Egypt and they were slaves in Egypt. But at this point, they're kind of back in that kind of space of captivity. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that, Jeremiah, per God's request, is reminding them of something. He's reminding them of a promise. And there's three things within this that I want us to see within this promise that I think are valuable and important for us to see the interpretation so that we can properly apply it to where it fits properly in our lives. And so the first thing that we need to understand in communicating this promise and, and understanding what that promise is and the first thing is this, is that the audience, the audience isn't an individual. The audience isn't an individual, it's the collective of God's chosen people. See, and this is a lot of times when we've talked about Philippians 4.13, when we talk about Matthew 7 last week, when we talk about Jeremiah 29.11, a lot of times the misapplication comes when we individualize everything. Listen, as as much as we love to be acknowledged as individuals and as much as we love to feel valuable, we're not most valuable as individuals, church. We are most valuable in the collective of God's family. We are most value in what we are right now as a group of broken, sinful people gathered together under the banner of one holy, awesome God. This is where we are most valuable, is here. And so when we read a verse like this, the problem is when we read this, we read it as if it's written only for me. And a lot of people, when they want, need the encouragement of this, they're applying it to their individual selves. For I know the plans I have for you, And so I'm thinking, for I know the plans I have for Jake. All right, so God, there are plans. There are specific things. And, and this, this isn't it, right? Like this can be it. Whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm navigating, like this, this isn't the right thing. So I need immediate release. I need immediate escape from wherever I am right now. But like I said, the problem with most of the interpretations is that it individualizes the promise and it takes away the depth and the beauty of what it means to be a part of the family of God. Because what they needed to know most about navigating the next 70 years of captivity and persecution and indoctrination by false doctrines is that they were not alone. Not only was God with them, but who was with them. The family of God was with them. This is what we carry in the promise of this is understanding that the audience is not me individually, but the audience is all of us. And that if I am not able to carry this torch on my own, God has placed in my life the family of God to carry it alongside me. The audience is not an individual, it's a collective. The second thing is this. And he says in verse 11, he says, for I know the plans I have for you. And I love how some other translations would say it. Some other translations would say it like this. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you. I love that interpretation. I love I love that that uh, that that way of saying it, because what we understand about is that God's thoughts, God's intentions are always leaning towards his people. And this is what he wants them to know as they're beginning 70 years of captivity. He says, I want you to understand that God's thoughts, God's God's intentions are leaning towards, moving towards you. Where you are in the midst of your mess, in the midst of the discouragement, in amidst all the discomfort and all the, the fear and all the doubt, God is leaning in that direction. God is there. God is present. He's reminding them about this. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He's called the the Prince of Preachers. He says this. He says, the Lord not only thinks of you, but towards you, his thoughts are all drifting your way. As a child of God, when you put your faith in Christ Jesus for the salvation of your soul, the Bible tells us that the thoughts of the God of the universe are leaning towards you. That there is no space there is no place at which you are separated from that. We may put ourselves in situations where we feel distant, where we're missing. I mean, like the people here, as God is using Jeremiah to communicate them, uh, communicate where they need to be and what they need to do, the people are missing it because they've lost focus. And so a lot of times we can, I've always equated it to like, you know, wandering out in the middle of nowhere with your cell phone and losing cell phone service, the further you move away from the main road, right? It's the same thing in our Christian walk. Sometimes we move away so far that the signal gets distorted and we can't quite catch what God is trying to say to me in the midst of trying to be a husband or a father, or what he's trying to tell you in the midst of where you are. But God has never left. God has never disconnected. We've just wandered where the signal is weak. But God's there for his people. And I love, and it's what uh, he's true, Jeremiah is telling these people man, God's thoughts are towards you. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. None can compare with you. David writing here, celebrating the goodness of God and who God is and what God does with and for his people. And then the third thing is this in that same verse. He says, For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you, to give you, to give you a future and a hope. And so, what does he say? He says, I have plans and promises and welfare and good for you. And he's speaking to the people of God, the children of Israel. And this isn't a promise for all nations. This isn't a promise for all people. He's speaking this promise to the people of God, to the people who are a part of the fold of God's chosen people. And so the thing that we need to understand as we are making application, as we are communicating this to other people, is that this promise is not a universal guarantee, but it's a promise for the people of God. It's a promise for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. And so the same way that the people of Israel had a promise for, I know the plans I have for you, plans for, to prosper you, plans for welfare, plans for a future and hope, all those things, that this is for the people of Israel in this time. The same way in Christ Jesus, there are promises that we enjoy as the people of God that outside of that banner no one else can experience. And there's a beautiful kind of uh, inclusive exclusivity to it because a lot of times that we wants to be kind of labeled as "Well, this is too exclusive. Christianity is too exclusive. It's, it's not for everybody. That's absolutely wrong. Christianity is literally created by the creator for every single creation made in the image of God. But it only comes, we sang about it this morning, through the way, the truth, and the life, who is Christ Jesus. And so it is the most exclusively inclusive invitation that we'll ever get. Because in the midst of that, we find the promises of God that lead us, the promises of God that we desperately need. In Christ, there are certain promises that apply to those who are in Christ that don't apply to the entirety of humanity. The promise of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, standing justified or made right before God is a promise, a future hope for the redeemed in Christ, not for the unrepentant world. It's for the redeemed in Christ. And so God has called us to be those people. And that's what we celebrate here. That's what we invite other people into, is this inclusively exclusive experience of forgiveness, right? Who doesn't need forgiveness? Who hasn't jacked some things up this week and needed to come to a space before a holy God and say, God, I need forgiveness. I need strength. I need direction. I need courage. I need all of those things. And the beautiful thing about it is that God provides those things. God provides those things through our holy God. And so, What is the main thing? And I want to kind of end with this this morning. Don't get too excited. I'm not officially wrapping up, but we're we're getting there. We're landing the plane, okay? Sometimes it takes a couple circles, but we're landing the plane. So the main thing that we get is this, and this is what I want us to understand. This is when we read this verse, we grab a hold of the interpretation to move forward in making the right applications is this. I want us to understand this, that we will miss the promise if we disagree with the process, we will miss the promise. If we disagree with the process, and that's a lot of times why this verse is misinterpreted or taken out of context, because when we read it, applying it to our individual selves, and then we enter into the process of where they are—seventy years of captivity—what happens is, is that we don't agree with the process. And so then we begin to make the application separate from what the interpretation is and then we lose, church. We lose the depth and the beauty of what this promise truly is. We lose it. The process, church, isn't always pleasant. It's not always pleasant. But following God's will and refusing to be driven by or led by the idolatry of comfort or success in the midst of a long and painful process guides us towards the promises of God church, the promises of God is not a promise of, of an instant escape from trouble. The promises that we read in here to these people is not an instant escape or a get out of jail free card for Christians to get out of the difficult situations that they're navigating. He's not telling them, listen, God has better plans for you than to spend 70 years in captivity. No, he's saying, listen, you're about to spend the hardest 70 years of your entire life. And there's a promise that God has for you that most of you may not even live to experience. But that promise is still there. That the limitations of humanity have no weight on the promises of God. And that's a beautiful thing. Because where we misinterpret the scripture is when we apply human limitations and human experiential limitations to what this verse is trying to tell us. Then when I enter into the hardest season of my life. And I pray this verse over and over and over again and think to myself, why is God not delivering me from this season of life? Why is God not taking this hurt away? Why is God not removing this burden? Why is God not making my life easier? Why is God not giving me that raise? Why is God not giving me that promotion? Why has God not fixed my marriage? Why has God not done these things in my life? And we begin to apply human limitations to the promises of God. And then the the only lot logical conclusion that we can come to is that God has abandoned me. And that's where the world is around us, is that when we present them with these verses that seem to communicate a get out of jail free card, like life's supposed to be easy, blessings and prosperity and happiness. Like I'm not supposed to struggle. Then what happens is when we meet the struggle and the struggle grabs a hold of us and doesn't let go, the only logical conclusion is that this is either false or God has given up on me. I know so many people in my life that they cannot face the shame of their sin because they've navigated season of, seasons of difficulty. Hey, even at the, at the, at the hands of Christians. Christians aren't, aren't uh, uh, innocent of applying that type of pressure also. But I know people in my life that cannot face the shame of their sin and they cannot get over the fact that the difficulties and hardships that they've navigated mean that God still cares about them at the end of it all. That God still has plans, right? Because they feel like they're too far gone. Like I've done too much. Like I've failed too much. I've been too far removed. God doesn't, there's no way God has any place for me in the midst of his so-called plans and definitely doesn't have any welfare for me. He doesn't have any future for me in the midst of this hope that he speaks of because we feel like we've been too evil. I've been evil. So if he means me not for evil, then I've already, I've already dismissed that prerequisite. I've already failed in that regard, But then again, taking human limitations and applying them to God's eternal promises, do not mix. And that's where we begin to miss what is really happening. But what God is communicating and what Jeremiah is writing to these people is he's communicating a hope. And this word hope can also be translated an expectancy, that there is and will be something beyond this. Listen, the promises of God aren't to remove us from all trouble, but the promises of God promise us that there's something beyond the trouble. The promises of God guarantee us that the trouble isn't for nothing. The promises of God are the only thing that can take any mess that we've lived in and apply it to our lives and on the other end of it be better and stronger for it. It's only under God can that happen. Because listen, If we live a life of of belligerent sin here and then we eventually come out of that and we begin to live differently, what, what can define... If we've lived the majority of our lives in belligerent, rebellious sin and then we kind of come out of it and live differently, a little differently post that and we feel like we've accomplished something, just being honest, because I've lived this life too, are we ever... On our own, are we ever able to identify ourselves as anything different than who we were? We can't. That's always where our mind goes. Especially when you live in a community where those things, where you kind of practice those things, every person, every place that you go to and you see reminds you of that, right? It reminds you of who you were, it reminds you of things you did. Maybe it's even people you did those things with. I mean, there are people that go to this church that I hung out with in high school. I mean, they know me. They knew who I was. They know things I did. And it's only in, listen, and this is where I want us to be with this. It's only in the promises of God that God can take all that mess and on the other end of it, not say that I'm defined by these things, but saying to the people around us and to ourselves that despite those things, God's still doing something for I know the plans I have for you. That even though they were going to spend 70 years struggling and suffering, a lot of it self-inflicted for many of them, maybe not so much, but they were just victims of the circumstance. God said, listen, I'm still going to do something with you in the midst of all that. There's still hope for you. There's a future. There's something. There's going to be a time when we're going to take all this. And you know, the thing is, if you go back and read the book of Daniel, just a beautiful representation of like even in that time when they're in captivity, living in Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar is like, everyone bow to me, worship my statue, do what I say, don't pray. All these things. And the people, Daniel and these other people, they choose not to do those things. And the oppression and the persecution comes in around them. God still shows up. That is the thing that just blows my mind and just just, just grabs a hold of me in such an awesome way that even in a time when many people spending 70 years separated from their home and thinking back that their home is destroyed, there's not going to be anything to go back to. And so they're living in this bad phase of humanity for themselves... That God is still working in the middle of that. That God is still standing in the midst of furnaces. That God is still protecting men in the bottom of lion pits. Even though they've been cast out of their home because of their sin, God is still there. Man, that is the most beautiful thing that I could just gather from leaning into this as he's writing to these people. Listen, you're about to spend 70 years in a place of destruction because of your sin. And what is God still doing? God is still rewarding faithfulness. God is still blessing them. God is still providing hope for them. God is leaning into the, the fiery furnace with three men and protecting them. God is showing off and showing up for his people even when they're in places of discipline for their sin. He says, for I know the plans I have for you. There's an expectancy. And what we need to understand is this is that there are promises in the process the plans or intentions carry a sense of surety not for immediate removal but a guarantee of restoration that God may not immediately remove us listen every single one of us in some way shape or form are navigating our own 70 years in some way I feel like in, in the people of, of, of Israel in the Old Testament they move from one tough situation to the next Which tells me that for each and every one of us, because we live in the world we live in, we are going to navigate different seasons of our own 70 years of captivity. Some of it self-inflicted. Some of it will become victims of our circumstances. And so what we need to know is that even if God allows us to spend every moment of that struggle, experiencing the struggle, the hurt, the disappointment, the the doubts. That as a believer in Christ, God says this over and over and over again to his people, that even though you're navigating this time, there's still something beyond it. There's a future beyond this. There's something, there's an expectation that God is going to take whatever mess that you've made and on the other end of it, God's going to provide And you know what? On the other end of it, he did At the end of that 70 years, many people didn't live to see that moment when they went back to Jerusalem. And you know what they did? They rebuilt. They rebuilt. And God provided a way. God fulfilled His promise. God will fulfill His promises, but the promises are in the process. Romans 5, 5, it says, and a hope does not put us to shame. I love that verse because it reminds me that I don't have to be ashamed of having hope beyond hurt. Like I don't have to have shame and having an expectation. Like for these people living in 70 years of captivity, they don't have have to be ashamed of the fact that they expect God to do something at the other end of it. We don't have to have shame for our hope, but God's love has been poured out into our hearts in verse 5 of Romans 5 through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God provides us with that. And you know what's really interesting about this, and then I'm going to finish. I promise promise you. I told you, circle in the plane. We're about to land it. Jeremiah actually speaks of, and I really want you, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read through this entirety. It's, It's dense and there's a lot there, but it it's, it's such an awesome, and, and honestly, I had never really seen this before. But there is a contrast to Jeremiah 29.11. So Jeremiah 29.11 is Jeremiah telling the people in captivity, hey, God has plans for you. He's going to protect you. He, you. he will prosper you. Like He will do all these things for you. There's a future. There's a hope after this 70 years is up. But then, a little bit later on, the book of Jeremiah talks about another group of people. This group of people is the Jews, a remnant, it calls it, where like a small group who instead of entering into captivity, the process, right, that they fled. That they fled. And so in Jeremiah 42 is where this kind of starts. So you can write that down, maybe go back to it and read it a little bit later. But this is Jeremiah speaking to these people as they're considering this. He says, do not fear the king of Babylon. So he's saying, don't fear Nebuchadnezzar. Don't fear the guy that's coming to get you. Don't fear the enemy. He says, do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. He says, do not fear him. This is in verse 11, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And then verse 16, it begins to talk about the, if you flee the process, if you flee to the place he's talking about here is Egypt, which Egypt was like the the vision of prosperity. Egypt was uh, ahead in its time. That's where all the technology was. That's where all the smartest people were. That's where the greener pastures were. Like Egypt was, seemed like the, the metropolis to be. Like That was the place to be. Because it seemed comfortable. It was wealthy. And so he's telling them. He's telling them, don't be afraid of the enemy that's coming to bring you in. Don't be afraid of this enemy. And then he continues on. He says, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid shall follow you close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. So the crazy thing is, so he's talking to a group of people who are entering into captivity. He says, God has plans for you, a future for you. He has welfare for you. If you enter into this slavery, this process, this captivity, this uncomfortable situation following God's plan for you. He says, if you enter into this, there's a future and there's hope for you. But then these other people, these other ones, Jews, God's chosen people, he says, if you flee to Egypt, if you flee away from the enemy, if you flee away from this uncomfortable situation, if you flee to what seems like more comfortable spaces for you, he says, you will surely die. And so as we kind of get through this, I hope we'll see more of this layout, but he continues on. And I I want you to see this and hear this in Jeremiah 43, the next chapter one through four. He says, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord, their God, with which the Lord, their God sent him to them. Talking about Jeremiah to the people, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of, and we're not going to read all those names because then we get stumbled up on them, and all the insolent men, talking about all these men, these Jews, said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. And so they know what Jeremiah told of the people going into captivity that are being brought to this place that God had been telling them that they were going to go. The place at which they were going because of their sin, because of the situation, they said, they fight back against Jeremiah and they said, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there. But he has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Joanne and the son of Correa and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. So they had a choice, remain in the land of Judah and go into captivity for 70 years. Or flee to Egypt. And can you hear the paranoia and the fear? And that they were thinking, like, God doesn't want this. God doesn't want us to go through difficult times. Like, God doesn't want me to experience uh, moments of sacrifice. God doesn't want me to experience situations at which I'm having to to struggle through and to press on. But then Jeremiah is writing, he's saying, that's exactly what God is calling you to do right now. But can you hear where it's very likely that we can enter into these spaces where we disagree with the process and we turn away from the will of God? The Jews in in Jeremiah's time, they raced to Egypt to escape the Babylonians. They were motivated by fear. They, They asked for God's guidance and for their decision making about their future. But when they were given a clear answer through God's prophet Jeremiah, they didn't agree with it. They ask for God. And how often as Christians do we do this sometimes? We pray and we ask God to give us answers to things. And then we, we get answers. Maybe it's from a sermon or maybe it's from somebody else in our life that God has given us to lean into our life. And say, hey, maybe you do this. And we get that advice and we say, yeah, I don't like that. How often do we do that? That's exactly what they did. Jeremiah comes to him. They tell him like, hey, this is what you need to do. You stay in Judah and the Babylonians are going to take you into captivity for 70 years. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. But God has purpose and plan and future and hope for you. But they didn't agree with it. They rejected it. There's no way God wants me to suffer like that. There's no way God wants that for me. And what did it lead them to eventually? In verse 44, 17 17 through 18, it mentions this queen of heaven. This queen of heaven that the Bible says here that they started making offerings to. But they didn't agree with the God that they worshipped before, so they created their own. This queen of heaven began to get their worship because it fit what they wanted. It fit their agenda. It fit what seemed more comfortable for them. It was going to be a lot more comfortable to go to the wealthy nation of Egypt. I mean, they're just doing things. Like, they're succeeding. Let's, you know, we'll just pretend like at some point in our history they didn't enslave us for hundreds of years and that God led us out of that place crossing a sea, parting an ocean, releasing us from that slavery. But, it's more comfortable. It's more comfortable than this. Then it's more comfortable than God's process. And I'm not, I'm not belittling that. Listen, sometimes the process of God is tough. But the promises of God are what carry us. And so for them, they're willing to enter in, back into a space that they spent hundreds of years of slavery in. Because it seemed like the better choice than navigating and enduring the difficult season that God was bringing them through. In verse 44, 27 in Jeremiah, he says, Behold, I am watching over them for disaster. Talking about that group going to Egypt and not for good. Do you hear that? I mean, this is the complete opposite of Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them you know, thinking that they would have more protection, it actually says that the means of protection would be their ends. And not only that they would think going to this land that was rich and plentiful, that there would be plenty to have, it says that they'll actually have famine. Listen, the way God works is usually what we think is the best way is not what God thinks we need. You know, a lot of times what we see as plenty, God sees as less Where we see as where we have need, God sees an opportunity to provide. And so the question for us as I finish the plan the plane's landing, can we do the same thing right now? Maybe not as refugees of war, but as people motivated by fear. Can we begin to allow ourselves to be led? led by things that are motivated by fear. Fear of conflict, fear of loneliness, fear of poverty, fear of not being a good husband or father, or fear of not being a good wife or mother, fear of not being a good Christian example, fear of not being, uh, being a good employee, whatever it might be. Many times, like the Jews, we want God's guidance on a decision, but when we hear it, it disagrees with what we're thinking, so we disregard it. Or maybe we get impatient or tired of waiting and proceed with our own plan. That's what the people of Israel did, this remnant that stayed. They didn't like what God had to say. And so what did they do? They went their own way. And so the truth of the matter is this. What did we say at the beginning of this section? We said we miss the promise if we disagree with the process. Listen, sometimes God's process for us is to bring us through the fire, to carry us to the other side stronger. That God hasn't abandoned us if we're navigating difficult seasons of life. That God can actually use the difficult season we've lived through to bring us out better on the other side. Listen, every single one of us are ebbing and flowing out of 70 years of captivity in some way, shape, or form. We're entering into some difficult space. You know, just when I think I have parenting figured out, then it's like a whole new like season of parenting and you know, you guys with younger kids and, and I know you older ones can attest to the, the, the ever-changing struggle of just life in general. And, um, so the reality that I need to know for me is when I read a verse like Jeremiah 29, 11, that in every time I enter into this new 70 years of, of difficulty or this season, man, God's still got a future in that. Like there's never a moment that's worth giving up. There's never a moment that, that, that is validates letting go, that God has a future, that there's hope beyond whatever we experience. There's hope beyond whatever season we're navigating. Because when we become dissatisfied with God, as these people did, we turn to alternative saviors. And there's a lot of things that we do. There's a lot of alternative saviors that we give ourselves over to. Self-help, retail therapy. I mean, you know what I'm saying? We can spend some money and feel good about it in the moment. Comfort eating, losing ourselves in hours of social media or streaming services just to disconnect from the world so that we can stop focusing on our hurt, substance abuse, all these things that we do or that we bring in to when we're dissatisfied with, with where God has us We begin to seek after other saviors and and like the people in Jeremiah 44 begin to worship at the feet of false gods. And we begin to idolize comfort. We begin to idolize our own needs, idolize our own desires. That's what they did. They knew if they went to Egypt, there would be a sense of comfort there. But what God said, if you go there where you think there's plenty, you're going to find nothing. But what God, the promise God makes in Jeremiah 29, 11, to a people going into captivity where they think they'll have nothing is that God says, I will be there with you every step of the way. And when a king brings you before his people and tells you to deny the God that you say you love, if you refuse to deny me and you get thrown into a furnace as those three men did in Daniel, he says, I'll be there with you. And that for them, even the confidence to say, you know what? If God doesn't rescue us, he's still good. The confidence to carry into the worst situations of our life, to be able to say, if God doesn't immediately rescue me from this, he is still good. If God doesn't take away this hurt, this difficulty, this doubt, if God doesn't make things easier for me, he is still good. If God doesn't take this sickness away, he's still good. If God doesn't take this fear and emotional insecurity away, he's still good. If God doesn't take whatever it is that I feel is oppressing me away, he is still good. Because he has a future and a hope and a plan. church of the world is a cold and dangerous place. And we miss the truth of Jeremiah 29, 11 when we miss the truth of hope in the midst of hardships. And Paul speaks of this. And as the band comes up, and we're going to spend a little bit of time worshiping before we leave, but Paul writes about this, kind of the same concept. In Romans 8, 28, he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Or process or plan for those who are called according to occasionally entering into spaces of difficulty, self-inflicted or victim of circumstance. He says that God intends good for those who are called according to the process of God. He says, I've got things for you. I've got good for you. That it doesn't matter at any point. You know, there are time and time and time again in my own life that I've sat and thought to myself, God, there is no way this is what you want from me. This is no way the direction you want me to go. God, there is no way that you need this from me. There is no way that I'm supposed to be experiencing life in this capacity. But you know what's pretty amazing is that at the end of the day, if we allow ourselves to navigate it when we've gotten through it, Then we get to look back and say, man, I never thought I'd make it through that, but I did. I did. And it's only through God in Christ Jesus that we can say that any hurt that we've experienced is not hurt for hurt's sake, but it's hurt for the glory of God at which he takes us and we come out of it on the other end stronger so that we can lean into the life of someone else who is navigating their own 70 years of captivity and say, hey, God has a future for you beyond this. Don't give up don't cash out, don't pull back because there's going to be somebody else like you in another quote unquote 70 years that are navigating their own struggles, their own destruction, their own captivity and they're going to need you at the other end of the hall, the other other end of the tunnel saying, hey, you can make it. I've been through this. I've been there. I've been a captive. I've been a slave. And you know what? Egypt is not the place to go. The comfort for you is to not run back to the things that enslaved you. The comfort for you is to move forward through the most difficult space of your life because on the other end of it, God's gonna have something for you. And he calls us, please don't run back to slavery. Please don't run back to that place. Don't run back to Egypt. Don't run back there for your God. Don't run back there for your fulfillment. Don't run back there for your provision. God says, I'm here. And not only here, what does he tell us? That his thoughts are toward us, that in the midst of all these situations in this season of captivity or difficulty or struggle or discipline, whatever it might be, that God is still working in the midst of that as he did with Daniel, as he did with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, as he does in the book of Esther, as they're in this time of captivity, God is at work in the midst of it. So we can never let ourselves be convinced that the best direction for us to go is back into wherever we were enslaved at. There's no hope there. Just more slavery. Where God says, in the midst of this, in the midst of this time, where I know the plans I have for you, it's hope. It's a future. It's welfare. Romans 8, 31 and 32, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with him, graciously give us all things? Church, God's promises don't guarantee that we won't go through troubles, hardships, persecution, natural disasters, dangers, or heartbreaks. But His promises do tell us these two things. The first thing is this: is that His starts are toward us, and on us, and for us in every season of life. second thing is this, is that his plans include greater glories than the difficulties we face now, whether it's four days or 40 days or 40 years, God promises greater things. Just hang on. Just keep pressing forward. Just keep moving. And then this is what Jeremiah says, and I'll end here and we'll sing together. Jeremiah 24-7. God's promise, he says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. The promises of God. He says, I will make sure you know who I am, that I will make sure you have everything you need, and I will make sure when you come back to me, you will come to me fully restored. That's what God plans for us. It's not an immediate release from whatever struggle we're going in, but it's at the promise of, at the end of that struggle, God has future born church could we stand together and as we bow our heads together as you stand we're going to pray and ask God to speak to us in a mighty way in the midst of whatever captivity we may be navigating that even if we don't see immediate relief from those things we would pray and ask God for the strength and the courage to not run back to slavery to find the purpose and the direction and the acceptance that we need church let us pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you. God, as crazy as it sounds, Lord, I thank you that you give us times and allow us to go through times and seasons of difficulty, times where we feel like we've lost it all. Lord, we feel like we're at the end of ourselves because, God, we know that it's at the end of ourselves that we realize we do not have the strength, the courage, the perception, or the direction to carry on the direction we need to go. God, that we can only find that in you. God, to be the parent, to be the, the, the husband, the father, the worker, the Christian that you've called us to be. Lord, that strength is not in me, but it's in you. And God, I pray that we would rest in the plans of your faithfulness. God, I pray that we would rest in the beauty of your promises, God. And I pray that we would not fear the process, but understand that in the midst of the process, we bear the weight of your true promises. For we know the plans that you have for us, plans for welfare, not for evil, but plans for a future and a hope wherever we are and whatever we're navigating, God. We know that that hope is in you. So Father God, give us that confidence. Give us that hope. And let us worship in that truth here this morning. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Churching this morning.